So today on Tune FM, we're sitting down to talk with Dr. Jamie Boyd, a particle physicist and researcher with CERN, who is working on Phaser, short for Forward Search Experiment. Jamie was part of the team that recently published a study in Physical Review Letters detailing the first direct observation of collider neutrinos with Phaser at the Large Hadron Collider. Neutrinos are nearly massless subatomic particles that are incredibly difficult to, to observe, so we're chatting with Jamie today to learn a bit more about them and what it takes to spot one of these elusive particles. So thanks for coming on to the show today, Jamie. Sure, no problem. So just to get a bit of background, how did you get involved in CERN and Phaser? Uh, good question, yeah. So I have been a particle physicist for many years, um, and I came to CERN in 2006 uh, to work on one of the large LHC experiments. So the Large Hadron Collider is the biggest uh, and highest energy particle collider in the world, and it came online. It had first sort of collisions in 2009. So I, I joined a bit before this. And so I worked on the final part of the kind of construction and uh, commissioning of one of the large experiments there called Atlas, which has like 3000 scientists working on it. So in the Large Hadron Collider, there's four places where the beams collide. Um, and at these places, there's large experiments. So Atlas is one of these four. And uh, in fact, Atlas and the CMS experiment were the two that discovered the Higgs boson with the LHC in 2012. So I was involved in that. But after that, I uh, became interested in trying to work on a smaller experiment, which uh, is associated with the collisions that happen inside Atlas, but it's further away. So this is this phaser experiment that you mentioned. And I've been leading the experimental effort on that. So I was involved in seeing if it was possible to put this experiment in and then designing, constructing the experiment and installing it into the LHC. And this was done during a, what we call long shutdown, so where there was a two-year period where there was no collisions while they were upgrading various things. And we took advantage of that to install Phaser inside the LHC complex. Um, in 2021, we installed it. And so then we started taking first data uh, in 2022 with the, when the collisions came back in the LHC. Does Phaser just focus on neutrinos or is the project researching other particles as well? Yeah, that's actually a good question. So Phaser was originally designed to search for what we call um, uh, light, weakly interacting new particles that we postulate could exist, but are not part of the standard model of particle physics. So the standard model of particle physics is the set of particles that we know exist and we've studied quite well. And uh, it's a very nice mathematical theory which describes all of the kind of interactions that we've seen at particle colliders. Um, and in fact, the Higgs boson that was discovered at the LHC was the kind of last piece of the puzzle of the standard model. But we know that there has to be, uh, we think we know <laughs> that there has to be physics beyond the standard model because the standard model doesn't include gravity and it doesn't have a good candidate for dark matter, which is one of the big sort of mysteries in, in physics. And so uh, when we designed Phaser, we were mostly targeting these light new particles that could be existing in some theories that go beyond the standard model. In particular, one of the particles that we're interested in is called the dark photon. So this isn't part of the standard model. We don't know it exists, but um, it's a nice, uh, there's a theory which includes the dark photon and which um, also includes dark matter. And it kind of fits together in a nice way with observations from uh, cosmology and astrophysics. So 
the dark photon is searched for in many experiments, but Phaser would be able to see dark photons if they have a particular values of the mass and uh, coupling, uh, which wouldn't be able to be seen anywhere else. So we, when we built Phaser, we were really thinking of that use case. But what we found out actually while we were studying what the backgrounds to looking for dark photons in Phaser would be, is that some of the backgrounds would be neutrinos. <laughs> so so yeah. what that means, if, if, if neutrinos are a background, it means you can see them. Uh, so then we realized it would be interesting to study them uh, in their own right, not as a background. And that's quite nice because if you build an experiment that's just searching for something that you know probably doesn't exist, then you look for it, you don't see it, and then you're done. So what's nice about neutrinos is we know that they exist. And so uh, we also can study these particles that we know they exist and we can learn more about their properties, which is so it's kind of a guaranteed thing that we should see. And then there's something that if we saw would be super interesting, but actually probably we won't see it. <laughs> yeah. So there's there's three types of neutrinos. You've got your electron neutrinos, your muon neutrinos and your tau neutrinos. Yeah. Um, is Phaser researching a particular flavor of neutrino or is it just whatever is there? Uh, that's a good question. So yeah, um, Phaser can detect all three types of neutrino. Um, and so all three types are produced uh, in the LHC collisions in the direction where Phaser is in sufficient rates that we should be able to see them at Phaser. Um, but there's a lot more muon neutrinos which come from the decays of pions, which are the most numerous particle that's produced in the LHC collisions. So muon neutrinos are the ones that we will see the most. We see about 10 times more of these than electron neutrinos, which are produced mostly in the decay of kaons and charm particles, which are produced less abundantly in the collisions. Uh, and then the tau neutrino, which is uh, very rare. So there's only been of order 20 tau neutrino interactions that have ever been recorded by experiments. So they're in fact the least studied particle in the standard model. Um, and we expect about another 10 times less of those than the electron neutrinos. But we still should be able to see them in phaser during uh, the LHC run that we're in now, which will go on for another two years after this, uh, next year and the year after. The tau neutrino would be the most exciting thing for us to see because it's uh, the least well studied and we'd be seeing it in an energy regime which has never been studied before. Um, but we need much more data to see this than we've taken so far. Do these different flavors have different challenges when it comes to detecting them, other than the amount of them that uh, there are? Yeah, they do. Um, so the way that we look for them is what's called a charge current interaction. So this means the neutrino interacts with a nucleus or something in the nucleus of the target that we have, and it produces uh, the charge lepton, which is associated with that neutrino. So that means a muon neutrino would produce a muon, an electron neutrino would produce an electron and a tau neutrino would produce a tau. So the challenge to see these things and identify them is to identify the charge lepton that would be produced in their interaction. So normally muons are the easiest particle to see because they travel through material very well. They don't get stopped by material. So you have a target that's made of lots of material. You produce a muon, charge muon inside the target when the neutrino interacts. And then this muon goes through the rest of the target and then you can see it in the electronic tracking detector that we have. So that's actually the result that um, we're talking about was that type of uh, analysis. For the electron or the tau, uh, for the electron, what happens is the electron interacts inside the target, produces a high energy electron, but then the electron interacts with the rest of the target and produces what we call an electromagnetic shower. And we do have a detector. So the way that the target that we have works is it's actually made of tungsten, which is the 
very dense metal, so you need lots of mass uh, to be able to see these neutrinos. Uh, we have one millimeter thick tungsten plates, and then we have this very strange technology called emulsion, nuclear emulsion film, that's very much like um, old style photographic film. Uh, so what you do is you have a thousand plates of tungsten emulsion, tungsten emulsion, and then while if the neutrino interacts and produces an electron neutrino, the electron goes through a few tungsten plates and makes this electromagnetic shower, and you see the signature in these emulsion films. But this stuff isn't read out electronically like most particle physics detectors. You have to then take it away, develop it like you would with old-style photographic film, and then you use a very high-resolution microscope to what we call scan uh, these emulsion films and make a digitized image. And in that image, you can then see this electromagnetic shower. So this is quite a different technique to what we use for the muon neutrinos. Um, and the result that uh, you sort of introduced at the beginning of this, this was really just looking for these muon neutrinos. But since then, we have released the first results, a preliminary result, so not a sort of paper that's been submitted to a journal yet, um, where we have seen for the first time these high energy electron neutrinos interacting in the emulsion, which is oh, That's really cool. exciting. Yeah, 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 it's cool. And you get really nice pictures of these uh, yeah. shower looks. Yeah, that's really cool. I'd be interested to see them. How has the technology that's being used to detect neutrinos advanced since they were first detected all the way back in the 50s? Because that's a long <laughs> leap for technology. Yeah, that's a very good question. Well, so, I mean, as I was mentioning this emulsion stuff, so this wasn't used in the first detection yeah. of um, neutrinos, but this is very old school technology in a way. You know, it's really... Um, you know, before it's not using electronic readout, which is kind of unheard of in most of the experiments that people work on. So I think the original neutrino detection, so, so normally when you're trying to detect neutrinos, you, the key is to have a huge, what we call target mass, because neutrinos interact so weakly that you just need a huge mass to have any sort of chance of them interacting. So just, uh, you know, while we're talking, trillions of neutrinos are going through us uh, from the sun, and none of them are interacting. And that's just because they interact so weakly. So you need a huge uh, target mass in order to get some interactions. What's nice about what we do at Phaser is um, the neutrinos that are produced in the LHC collisions, and in particular, the ones that go along the beam line, which is the direction where Phaser is, are very high energy. And their probability of interacting goes up with energy. So the ones that we see in Phaser are about a thousand times higher energy than typical uh, neutrino experiments. And that means we can live with a, ton a target that's a thousand times lighter than are used in typical experiments. So just to go back to what you were saying, in the original uh, neutrino experiments, they have this huge target. Normally in the old days, it was made of uh, liquids like water, um, but which is doped so that when a neutrino interacts, it produces light from scintillation. And then you have uh, photo detectors, light detectors around this. So you see these huge sort of um, baths of water, which are thousands of tons surrounded by um, photo detectors to see the light that's produced. I think uh, Fermi Labs used oil at one point. Yeah, there's, there's several yeah. different things you can use. Depends a little bit on the energy range and the neutrino flavor that you're targeting. Um, but they're very huge detectors. And, and the experimental challenge is normally to um, have a way of having a very large mass that you can detect the particles in without being overrun by background. So you have to worry about backgrounds from radioactive components inside the uh, detector. So as I say, in the LHC, it's quite different because uh, the neutrinos are much higher energy and they're also very, what we call collimated. So they really form a very sort of thin beam that goes through our detector from the way that they're produced in the collisions. And this 
in some ways makes it much easier for us to be able to see them because we can have quite a small target and we know which direction they're coming in uh, and we can sort of build our detector around that concept. What's difficult in the LHC is that it, to get into the place which is interesting where phaser is, it's not very easy. So you have to walk along the LHC tunnel for 500 meters and climb over it. And especially when we were building the detector, this place wasn't really designed for an experiment. And this was uh, kind of the challenge to install all, all of the needed infrastructure um, in this special location. So a lot, a lot of work has gone into this. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, yeah. phaser is a small experiment. So we have about 80 people working on it, uh, which might sound like a lot. But as I said, Atlas and CMS, they have uh, several thousand on them each. Um, and phaser was, I mean, compared to other experiments at CERN, the idea of phaser was written in a paper by some theorists in 2017. And then it was already taking physics uh, data and making physics results in 2022. So this is only five year period is quite short in in the lifetime of particle physics experiments. So in um, like Atlas and CMS, they were planned for tens of years before they even started taking data and they've already been taking data now for, you know, more than 10 years. So these are very long-term projects and yeah. phaser is in some ways sort of cheap and small and quick compared to these uh, bigger projects. Sort of the, the baby of, of the group in a way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> So we mentioned before that there's three types, but there's also, I believe, a, a hypothetical fourth type, This the idea of a, a sterile neutrino. Mm -hmm. How does that fit in with these other three? Well, yeah, the sterile neutrino is a complicated thing. So the, the main the neutrinos that we know about are incredibly light. So they're much, much lighter, millions of times lighter than the other particles in the standard model. And in fact, in the original formulation of the standard model, they were thought to be uh, massless to have no mass. Uh, experiments have shown that they can change their flavor. So as they propagate, an electron neutrino can turn into a muon neutrino. And in the sort of theory, this can only happen if they do have mass. So now we think that they're not massless, but they just have incredibly tiny masses that are millions of times smaller than any other particle. So we've shown from experiments that there can only be three light neutrinos, these neutrinos that are very light, there can only be three flavors of these. We know this from uh, experiments at CERN in the 80s and 90s, but you could have neutrinos that are heavier, uh, so they wouldn't have been seen by these other experiments um, and which could exist. And in some theories uh, that include these sterile neutrinos, they can help explain several of the problems of particle physics, like things like dark matter and um, what we call baryogenesis, how things formed in the early universe. So there are sort of motivations why these particles could exist, but the the mass range that they could exist in is very large. So it's, we know that they're heavier than the particles that we know at the moment, but we don't know how heavy they are. And that makes it rather um, difficult to search for them because the parameter space is very large. One thing you can do is you can look for these oscillations. I mentioned what we call oscillations where one turns into the other. And in theory, uh, the presence of a fourth sterile neutrino can affect this oscillation rate because in theory, some of these electron neutrino could oscillate into the sterile neutrino and this can change how this oscillation looks. So there are many experiments which are looking very precisely at these oscillations. It's a bit complicated because the oscillation depends on uh, the energy of the neutrino and how far it travels. So you have to build quite complicated experiments where you know you have a, the neutrinos are produced somewhere and then they're detected thousands of kilometers away. And this is, of course, expensive and difficult to build. 
But by looking at this data from several experiments, you can constrain the possibility of these uh, sterile neutrinos. You can actually also look for them directly being produced in the collisions at the LHC. So in Atlas and CMS, that's something that they're doing. So I think uh, at Phaser at the moment, the sterile neutrinos are not something that we're really targeting. But if you built a bigger version of Phaser, which we're sort of talking about at CERN at the moment, and it would be able to have much larger um, counts, or it would be able to detect much larger numbers of neutrinos, then you could see actually differences in the neutrino rate um, basically that these neutrinos that are produced in the LHC collisions, they could oscillate into sterile neutrinos before they get to phaser. And so this could affect how many we see compared to how many we would expect. So there is uh, some region of this parameter space where phaser could say something about sterile neutrinos uh, in the future if, if we had a bigger version of our detector. Yeah. So it's it's kind of like you've got these three neutrino types, these flavors that mirror the other leptons, the heavier mm -hmm. leptons. Is there anything different between them except for their mass? And, you know, if we have a sterile neutrino, does that have to match another lepton the way that the other three do? Yeah, it, so it, it does sound like that, but um, actually it's not quite the same. So the difference between the neutrinos and the leptons is their mass, but also their charge. So their electric charge. So the leptons, the electron, the muon, and the tau have electric charge of one or minus one. So you have a a particle and an antiparticle, electron and mm -hmm. positron, uh, that have either charge one or minus one, uh, whereas the neutrinos have zero electric charge. So this is a very important difference. Um, and the way that they're described in the standard model is that you have what's called a doublet for the lepton, for the charged lepton. So you have a left-handed and a right-handed electron, whereas in the standard model, you only have a left-handed neutrino and a right-handed anti-neutrino. So you have this, it's called a parity violating uh, thing. So the neutrinos, this is to do with what's called the weak interaction and the way that they interact with the W and Z bosons. So if you have sterile neutrinos, um, you allow, you, you actually have a sterile neutrino for each of the existing neutrinos. And these heavy sterile neutrinos um, are kind of forming a doublet with uh, with the existing mm -hmm. neutrino. So it's a little bit like having a left-handed and right-handed neutrino. In the standard model, you only have a left-handed neutrino. So you introduce a right-handed neutrino, but it's so heavy that you don't, it doesn't sort of play a role in normal physics that we've seen so far. And this is, um, as I said, it can solve various problems because you introduce this symmetry, which is quite nice. The standard model is really built on these types of symmetries. On the other hand, there's no real experimental evidence for it at the moment, so it's uh, it's kind of postulated, but um, not something that we have any evidence of at the moment. We've had other particles that were theorized but had no evidence before for in the past, though, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. Like the Higgs boson was, I mean, yeah. it was evidence from a mathematical, uh, theoretical point of view, but we, you know, the, we searched for the Higgs boson for nearly fifty years <laughs> between when it was uh, sort of postulated and when it was observed. No, no, this is for sure true. Um, I guess it's a little bit how strong uh, the evidence is, sort of the theoretical arguments are that drive you towards this. Um, so, so in particle physics, there's many, when people turned on the Large Hadron Collider, there was quite a strong expectation that we would discover these so-called supersymmetric particles, which were coming from this very nice theory, supersymmetry. Um, which extended the standard model and in fact introduced a, a new particle for every standard model particle, but with a different spin. 
And uh, there was quite a expectation that we would start to see evidence of these particles. And now, having run the experiments for more than 10 years, uh, people don't think this is going to happen anymore. <laughs> so, yeah. so, you know, there's these kind of trends that come and go. Um, but in the end, the experiment is is kind of the king. You know, it, it is, you can have a very nice theory, but it doesn't mean anything if if you don't see the evidence for it. And of course, you know, we, we could be missing something that we just don't know about. That yeah, exactly. Be the key to everything. You know, there's that whole idea of a unified theory of everything. Um, so why is it so important that we continue to research these particles? Well, it's a good question, of course. But um, I mean, this is something that we, mankind has done for a very long time. Uh, I mean, particle physics in particular, you know, basically the first particle that we really understood was the electron. And I'm not saying that particle physics will lead us to a revolution that revolutionizes our life like electricity has, but, you know, without understanding how the electron works, we wouldn't have uh, all of the technology that we have today. So there is a part of it that is, you know, exploring what's possible and maybe this will improve people's lives in the future. Uh, I mean, personally, I'm just interested in the, you know, what you call uh, understanding things, how things work, knowledge for the sake of knowledge. But another thing that is has been proven to be true is that the the sort of search for understanding leads to technology. So not necessarily what you understand from the theory side leads to new technology, but the tools you have to make in order to be able to study these things uh, leads to technologies which are interesting. So, you know, the Large Hadron Collider, which is the tool we use to study the stuff we're talking about, this was really... Uh, pushed a lot superconducting magnets that are used in a lot of medical um, medical science, uh, cancer imaging and uh, cancer treatments. Uh, the World Wide Web, you know, came from CERN based on this type of research. So there's a yeah. lot of stuff that basically is a byproduct of these type of things. But I think maybe one thing that's interesting is the link between particle physics and cosmology and understanding how the universe began is quite strong because, you know, when you have a cosmological model, you need to input all of the particles and how they interact. And especially in the very early universe, this becomes very important how the universe uh, evolves from there. So if you think it's interesting to understand how how the universe and the galaxies and stars formed, and then also how maybe things will evolve in the future, you know, will the universe uh, collapse you know at the moment it's not really sure if the universe will expand forever if it will go into a steady state or if it will collapse and these are just existential questions they're not something we can do anything about but but maybe they're interesting my, i completely my... agree yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm so fascinated by particle physics and quantum physics and things like that and this idea that we have all these particles that if they exist they just completely break the standard model of physics you know mm, yeah so what do we do in that case? Like if we do discover something and it goes, well, now we have to completely redo this entire model that we've been functioning off, you know, what are the implications of that? Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that's interesting in physics, I think is, um, so you say that you'd have to completely redo the standard model and it's correct. But on the other hand, the standard model has been extremely successful at describing experimental results in the regime where we've been able to make experiments. So what this means is that if the standard model is wrong, it still has to be right. Like all of the results predicted by the standard model have to still be right in the energy regime where we've been able to, to make measurements. And so what this means is that you can kind of think of the standard model as an effective 
theory that works at a certain energy regime. And this is a little bit like, you know, in physics in the past, in classical physics, you had um, Newton's laws, right? Newton predicted gravity and uh, motion and all of this. And Newton's laws are very good at describing everything in the scale which we live on Earth. So when things are meters long and move slowly, if you start moving near the speed of light, it turns out Newton's laws are wrong and you need to invoke Einstein's relativity. And if you start going very, very small, it turns out Newton's laws are wrong and you have to use quantum mechanics. But that doesn't mean Newton's laws aren't a good way of describing how things are in our everyday lives. And so with the standard model, it would be a little bit the same that the standard model would be able to predict everything that we see at the LHC or in previous experiments. But if we go to higher energy scales, then maybe new particles appear, which introduce new uh, types of interactions. And so that's kind of how theoretical physicists think about this stuff. And you can kind of, because the standard model doesn't include gravity, you kind of, if, if you still sort of follow it through, you get to this regime where you're, where gravity becomes strong. So when you're close to the edge of a black hole, for example, then we know the standard model can't work because gravity is really driving things. And so this is the kind of experiment that, um, you know, theoretical physicists would like us to be able to do is do experiments at the edge of a black hole because this is where we know that uh, the yeah. standard model doesn't work. So. <laughs> that's that's a lot harder than, than detecting particles, though, I'd imagine. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it, it's not at all realistic. But I think... Um, what you need to do or what's important is to try and combine information from astrophysical sources with experiments that you can do on Earth. Because uh, even though the LHC is the highest energy collider ever so far, and at CERN and other places they're sort of thinking about building bigger colliders, there is a limit to how much energy you'll be able to collide in a collider on Earth in sort of laboratory conditions. But in space, we know we have cosmic rays that are accelerated to huge energies, much, much higher than this. And so by studying those in conjunction with what we can do on Earth, you know, this gives us some sort of handle. And actually, that's one of the reasons why these phaser neutrinos are so interesting, because um, what we're detecting at phaser, these neutrinos in this paper that we talked about, these are the highest ever energy neutrinos that have been produced uh, from a man-made source, so from an experiment where we kind of control the initial conditions. But actually, we see neutrinos, there's this experiment in the South Pole called Ice Cube, which is a really cool experiment, which uses the ice of the South Pole as the kind of target for these neutrinos. And then they put, uh, I, I don't know if you know this experiment, they drill down hundred, no, uh, several kilometers photo detectors. And then as the neutrino comes in, it interacts in the ice, it produces charged particles, and they leave a light signature. And it turns out when you're that deep in the ice, the light can traverse the ice well. So by detecting the signal of this light, you can figure out where the neutrino interacted, which direction it was moving in, and what energy it had. And this can be like hundreds of times the energy of the LHC or thousands of times. Uh, but phaser is kind of filling the gap between previous measurements of neutrino interaction cross-sections, we call it probability that the neutrino interacts, which have happened at lower energy, and the data that comes from this astrophysical sources and ice cube. And so phaser is kind of bridging this gap, and this provides really useful information. That's really fascinating yeah it's quite, so yeah, it's quite so you've mentioned um you mentioned maybe a, a bigger uh you know collider in the future so what is next for phaser at the moment well for phaser um you know phaser as i probably tried to explain is pretty small and yeah. was kind of put together pretty quickly and i have to say 
pretty happy with the way that it's gone so far. But of course, having a bigger um, experiment, especially for these neutrinos, you know, phaser has a one ton target mass. And if you made it 10 tons, you would see 10 times as many neutrinos. And so there is an idea which we call the Ford Physics Facility, and which is to be able to install a bigger experiment to, to study neutrinos and things like these dark photons at the LHC. Uh, the LHC, in uh, two years' time, there will be a long shutdown where they will upgrade the LHC and it will go, it will turn into what's called the high luminosity LHC. So that's where they change some parts of the LHC to allow it to collide uh, protons at a rate 10 times higher. So you'll get something like 10 times more collisions, so 10 times more neutrinos produced in these collisions. And so if we do that, and at the same time, we made the target mass in phaser 10 times bigger, then we would see 100 times more neutrinos, which would be really interesting. The trouble is at the moment, phaser is installed in this kind of slightly complicated location, which in fact just happens to be a tunnel in the right place, which was used for something in the past. And that's where we've installed phaser. But it's really restricted, like it's not very easy to access and to transport bits of equipment in. And it's actually not very big either. So it's not really enough room to build a bigger experiment there. So this Ford Physics facility is an idea to, um, in fact, dig a new cavern. So the LHC is 100 meters underground. So you have to dig 100 meters underground, have a shaft that connects you to the surface, and then a big, what we call a cavern, you know, 65 meters long, 10 meters wide, where we would be able to install several experiments, which would be able to really uh, use this beam of interesting neutrinos to study physics. So that's what we're hoping to do. But this is, of course, not as cheap as Phaser. <laughs> no, so yeah. We're currently sort of trying to understand the best way of doing this and uh, trying to attract funding to be able to sort of realize such a project. It, it goes from costing of order 1 million for Phaser to, you know, of order 100 million for, for this cavern and several experiments inside it. But the, the physics is very interesting. So I hope that we'll be able to, um, to get some funding for such a project. Yeah, I do as well, because it sounds really fascinating. And I think it's important, not just knowledge for knowledge's sake, but, you know, to advance technology, to advance our understanding of, of the world around us. It's very vital, I think, to our identity as human beings. That's what we do. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I think the other thing is that, you know, for that particular project, the uh, an argument which I use is that, um, you know, the LHC costs a huge amount of money to build, like several billions. And it's producing these neutrinos at high energy. And so in some ways we're missing uh, a possibility by not spending a much smaller amount of money to be able to really exploit this physics. Um, so the LHC does many, many interesting physics things with Atlas and CMS and the other experiments. So we are definitely exploiting the physics of the LHC, but you know we are missing a little piece that we could exploit. And so I hope that we're able to, uh, in the future, really benefit from this. I can't wait to see what happens next. Honestly, I'll be be watching <laughs> along with bated breath. So thank you so much for, for coming on today, Jamie. It's no been problem. really interesting. I'm hoping all our listeners have learned something. Maybe they've never heard of neutrinos before or they have and they wanted to hear a little bit more about it. So thanks for coming on and teaching us all about <laughs> what you guys are doing at Phaser. No problem. Thanks a lot for having me. Cheers. <laughs>